This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host. Welcome, everyone. This is the Meaningful Sport Podcast, and I am your host, Nora Ronkainen. Meaningful Sport is a series of discussions on the why and how involvement in sport and physical activity can be an important part of a life worth living. If you are interested in the theme, you might also want to check out MeaningfulSport.com. There you can find podcast show notes, read a blog, and access many resources for further explorations of Meaningful Sport. I've been very much looking forward to today's conversation, where we explore what kind of relationship athletes develop with physical activity and sport after athletic retirement. Although retirement from sport is a much-studied topic, until fairly recently, researchers were mainly focused on understanding how athletes adapt to life outside of sport, but not so much on how they adjust their place within physical cultures. So I'm delighted to be talking today to Dr. Erin Reifstek from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Erin is an assistant professor at the Department of Kinesiology, and her research has made a substantial contribution to understanding and supporting at least transition to physically active lifestyles. So welcome to the podcast, Erin. I've been very much looking forward to talking to you. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to talk with you as well today. I've read your research for many years. You have many interesting pieces that kind of touch upon this fairly neglected topic. And so I'd love to hear the story behind this research. How did you pick this topic? And I've seen in your research that you've been an athlete yourself. So does it have some kind of link to your own experience as well? Oh, for sure. Um, so just kind of a, a brief overview. My main line of research, as I think you alluded to, focuses on promoting physical activity and health uh, through sport and life transitions. And most of my work up to this point has been focused on the transition out of uh, the U.S. collegiate sport system specifically, although more recently we're also starting to look at adapting some of that work to um, other transitional contexts like transitioning out of the military. And for me, I consider myself an applied researcher. So I really try to focus on um, emphasizing the translation of research to practice. And um, we can talk about uh, in a little bit, one of the programs we developed to help athletes make healthy transitions out of sport. But as you alluded to, I, I really got interested in this topic area because of my own experiences. As a, as a former athlete, um, one of my uh, colleagues, who's one of my main collaborators, introduced me to this idea that uh, research is me-search. So um, part of what we study is understanding ourselves through the process. And that's true for me. Um, I was a collegiate field hockey player. And when I transitioned out, I um, struggled a little bit with kind of my identity and, and motivation for physical activity outside of sport. And at the time, I felt like there really wasn't a lot of information or resources out there to help athletes with that part of the transition specifically. And so um, as a graduate student, I decided that's what I was going to start looking into and, and studying. And I think as I've 
uh, developed as a scholar over the years. Of course, I, I try to incorporate more data and theory into my work now, but that, that personal experience definitely sparked it. Mm-hmm. And maybe you want to share a few words about how did that transition take place for you in terms of your relationship with sport and exercise these days? Yeah, so um, I guess I'll age myself. I graduated and finished my career in uh, 2009 and um, immediately transitioned into graduate school after I finished my undergraduate studies. And um, I just, I think I was taken aback by how difficult it was for me to motivate myself to go out and run and work out. When I was a student athlete, like I was one of the fittest people on our team. Like it was a big, it was really important to me. I valued it. Um, my entire identity, maybe not entire, but a big part of my identity was really wrapped up in being a field hockey player. Like if somebody asked me when we did introductions in classes, like to tell me, tell them about who I am, like field hockey came up in one of the top three things that I would mention, um, pretty consistently. And so I, I knew it was a big part of me and I was motivated and, and like to be physically active. And then I found myself really struggling to like motivate myself to do that without that structure of, of competition and sport. And, um, so that for me, I just wanted, I wanted to know if other people had that experience too, or if it, if it was unique to me and, and why that might be the case. And, um, I think over the years, like I imagine is true for a lot of the participants we study is it's my activity has fluctuated. Um, I think there's been times where I've really been able to apply my, what I know about sports psychology and my research to be able to maintain an active lifestyle and, and um, to have it kind of reintegrated into my sense of self and, and to be finding things that I enjoy and, and that motivate me and that connect me with other people um, but there's been times where I've uh, struggled with it. I think certainly, uh, like a lot of folks through the pandemic, I think has has had some barriers to maintaining physical activity, even among those of us who who were pretty motivated pre pandemic. And that also for me coincided with becoming a mother. So there are a lot of factors that have sort of disrupted my physical activity. And that's something that um, I'm still uh trying to I think figure out it and readopt um, mm-hmm. an, a lifestyle that makes sense for me yeah yeah let's um, talk a little bit about the U.S. context where you are so coming from Finland and now living in Switzerland and I think in the European countries the sports system is somewhat different and in the U.S. it's much more uh, structured within those studies so if I've got it right, basically a lot of athletes will know that uh, their sporting career will uh, will finish much more predictably than perhaps athletes in Europe who are in a more flexible club-based system. Yeah, I think that's my understanding of it too. Um, admittedly, I don't um, have a, a, a super strong understanding of what the sports systems are like in other countries, but based on what I understand, the U.S. collegiate sports system is definitely more tied to education here and um in terms of like the most elite level of amateur competition for the majority of sports is going to be division one collegiate athletics which is sponsored by um the national collegiate athletic association often referred to as the ncaa and um depending on the sport um 
I've seen, you know, different stats updated every year, but if we, I think basketball was one of the ones I looked at recently about, you know, three to 4% of high school athletes um, who play basketball will end up being able to play basketball at the collegiate level. And then only about 1% of collegiate basketball players make it to the professional level. Mm-hmm. And um, for other sports, there aren't even professional a- outlets for some sports. So for me, field hockey in the U.S., um, really college is the highest level unless you're able to be one of a handful of people that play for the national team. Um, college is going to be your highest level of competition. And so um, it is sort of this predictable transition that's going to occur for most folks once they get to the, the end of their collegiate career. And for most athletes, the collegiate career is about four years of eligibility. Um, you can extend it um, through things like, they call it taking like a redshirt year, which means that you don't play for a year, maybe due to injury or because um, you want to wait until uh, you ha- you'll have opportunity for more playing time. So you can extend your career slightly for reasons like that. And, and with COVID, there have been some exemptions that have given people extra years of eligibility. But generally you have about four years that kind of coincides with your you going through um, your undergraduate education and then after that it's like you know you're you're 22 years old and and suddenly your formal athletic career is over so I think that's kind of a weird system in a Mm. lot of ways yeah yeah it does feel a bit strange that you know you're retiring at the age of 22 so it's very very early and so when basically, as you described it, it seems quite clear that for most athletes, their career is going to end with this educational transition or when you finish uh, finish in, in your educational pathway. So at the same time, your athletic career is also for the vast majority, that's that's the end of the athletic career. How much in, in your experience, your own experience, and also knowing the institutions, how much focus and effort is there on this career planning and uh, thinking around the athletic career will finish? And how are the athletes helped to prepare for that? Sure. Um, I think there's definitely an acknowledgement there, right? Um, I, I think a lot of efforts are placed first on the transition into college. So there are a lot of life skills programming focused on helping athletes make that transition. And um, there are, you know, transitional efforts out of college as well. I think um, perhaps some of just due to like logistics and time and emphasis. And if most, the majority of your athletes are here and there's only, you know, a quarter of them leaving, some where some of your emphasis goes in terms of programming. But there, there are transitional programming um, at, at different institutions. I, and, um, a lot of them, I think when I first got interested in, in doing this work, from what I understood it, looking at some of those life skills programming, a lot of it was focused on career transition, which is super important, obviously. And, and even some, you know, maybe emotional mental health type transitions also really important. But what I found is that there wasn't a lot of conversation around sort of the physical transition that athletes are likely to go through. And so to me, there was a gap that like, yes, we're offering some transitional resources, but maybe there's a piece of this transition that we're not um, fully acknowledging or preparing athletes for. And um, that's just kind of where I found as kind of my niche area of what I wanted to focus on was more 
of the physical transition. And I think um, part of that is that there's just assumptions out there that athletes, by nature of being athletes, know how to be active and have always been active. And so they will be active. And it's just not a, a population we need to be concerned about from a public health promotion perspective when there's so many other groups that need help. And um, so I think they've often been left out of um, that kind of health promotion research. But um, what we find and, and others have shown is it's more complicated, more nuanced than that. And so we are starting to see, um, I think especially in the last 10 years, uh, there being more research focused on um, sort of long-term outcomes of U.S. collegiate sport participation. Yeah, so how do, how do the numbers look like in terms of you've done both quantitative and qualitative research and and obviously you mentioned a couple of other studies in the U.S. context. So are athletes then transitioning to this physically active lifestyle or is it more like an idea that we seem to have but that doesn't necessarily <laughs> match the reality? I think um, the research has been mixed uh, to some extent in terms of whether or not athletes are more or less physically active than non-athletes, whether they have you know, worse, better, or the same health or health-related quality of life than non-athletes. I think collectively, though, at least that research tells us that um, collegiate sport participation doesn't automatically translate into more positive health outcomes later in life. Um, and I think that's a, a key point. Um, and for me, and um, this is just my personal opinion, I, I haven't found the comparison to non-athletes to be particularly compelling or interesting. Um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. I know there's one kind of national survey um, that was done um, fairly recently, maybe a year or so ago, um, where they looked at um, different outcomes in uh, former student athletes and, and non-athlete alumni from colleges. And uh, what they found were was that um, less than half of former student athletes reported that they were thriving in their physical well-being after college. And that was higher than non-athlete alumni, right? So that's a positive finding in the sense that it seems like they're doing better than non-athlete alumni. But to me, that number by itself is concerning. If we take you know the comparison out, that means that more than half of these former elite athletes are not physically thriving. And so how do we help them um, be on a better trajectory there. And, um, you know, our research we found, um, in terms of numbers that you're asking about, uh, we tend to see that athlete, former athletes, and this is self-report data mostly, um, they report, um, fairly high levels of physical activity that would exceed kind of national recommendations for health promotion guidelines. But there are still likely to be declines that occur compared to what they were doing in college. And there's some, you know, acute metabolic changes that it can occur with that as well and um, some health implications there. So um, I, I try to be clear that I don't I don't want to paint like a super negative picture with broad strokes. I think, you know, a lot of athletes do make healthy transitions, but just to recognize that it is an issue and a challenge for at least some athletes. And it's maybe more nuanced and complicated than what um, people might assume on the surface about what happens to athletes when they're done competing. And so my work has been focused on trying to better 
understand that transition, particularly from a psychosocial perspective. That's um, what my academic training is in. And then, um, you know, be able to figure out strategies to, to promote um, lifetime health and wellness if that's the outcomes that we want out of sport. Yeah. And you already mentioned in your in relation to your own story that identity is one of the big issues in this puzzle, trying to understand the puzzle. And you have some uh, research published that is looking at athlete identity and exerciser identity and how those relate to physical activity after retiring from sport. So maybe we discuss the identity problem a little bit and what are the alternative identities that are available for former athletes? Sure. And I'd be interested to hear some of your perspective on this too, because I think a lot of your work has been around um, athletic identity as well. I think, so from an identity perspective, thinking about training for sport versus um, health-related physical activity, those are different things. And part of understanding why those are conceptualized differently, I think, requires understanding what it means to be an athlete and um, how physical activity comes to be defined within elite sport culture and um, and based on sort of the values and norms that are embedded within that culture. So I know sports sociologists talk about the sport ethic and kind of within that sport ethic that athletes, you know, strive to be the best. Um, they accept, you know, physical risks and, and demands of their sport and, uh, and sometimes sacrifice their, their health um, for performance. And that, I think, investment in elite sport culture um, kind of reinforces that identity of what it means to be an athlete and then um, sort of the associated behaviors that you engage with to demonstrate and validate that identity. And so um, not surprisingly, I think within that culture, physical activity can come to be defined as very intense and even painful, um, which is probably not the ideal perspective if we want folks to have about physical activity if we want them to do it across the lifespan. Um, and so when we think about identity theory and, and identities driving behavior and, and for athletes, um, as you know, you know, being an athlete, and I alluded to my own experience, it's a big part of of their identity, how they see themselves. Um, and that is likely to be associated with certain types of physical activity behaviors, um, particularly that that is consistent with competitive sport training. But it may or may not um, relate as strongly to broader health-related physical activity. And, and so one of the studies I think um, you were referring to, we kind of looked at athletic identity as sort of a, a more narrow definition based on sport versus exercise identity, which is a little broader around physical activity and exercise. And, and exercise identity was a stronger predictor. So they both were related, but that exercise identity was, was a stronger predictor. And, um, and then from a motivational perspective, which is also some of what we've incorporated in, into our work, you know, s theories like self-determination theory tell us that um, having more internally driven motives versus externally driven motivation um, is more facilitative of sustained engagement. And so um, when physical activity is consistent with, you know, your values and, and goals in life and it's integrated into your sense of identity, then you're more likely to have self-determined motivation and, and hopefully engage in that behavior uh, more long term. 
Um, but I think for athletes, they are kind of navigating this transition out of sport it has sort of an impact on both their identity and their motivation as they're trying to figure out who they are and then what motivates them outside of competitive sport. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in my qualitative studies, I sometimes find that athletes don't really find that they belong to either the athlete category or the exerciser category. And we do have some studies showing that this kind of health-related motivation or health-related messages are something that might not be very motivating for young people, that, you know, they might not think about that they would have some health issues. And it's still very instrumental in terms of you should be active not to get sick, you know. And in that sense, it seems that we also need, like in, in a more cultural level, we would need to have more different identity positions that would be available for young people when they finish this competitive sport. And I think studying this, one of my studies looked at with older runners and when they realize they are no longer performing at the peak, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to continue running or stop altogether? Like my athletic career is over. And so I think for some of them, that idea of what it means to be a runner and not an athlete or an exerciser, but the runner was in some ways something that sustained much more. In a simple way, just runner is somebody who runs and they would just go running. And <laughs> so I, I think it's a very complicated question and, and our cultures don't provide very much this kind of attractive possibilities where you can go. And I also, in your paper, you were talking about that often in the athletic retirement studies, there's an assumption that athletes should be helped to leave their athletic identity behind. And and you are arguing more that they should find a different way of, in some ways, still reincorporating that identity into their sense of who they are. So maybe we can talk about that a little bit. I, I tend to agree with you on that. Yeah, I think there are positive aspects of athletic identity. I think in the research, it, it tends to focus on some of the negative um, associations with um, particularly when you have um, an exclusive identity um, at the expense of, you know, developing other types of identities. And, and that's where some of the research is focused. But there are some positive aspects of, of being an athlete. And it is related to physical activity participation, maybe, you know, we could debate about what types of physical activity it might be most related to. But I've really thought about, you know, more of a broaden and build approach of not necessarily abandoning that part of you, but how does that um, expand and translate in uh, to your new life. And so uh, even in, in the program that I mentioned uh, that we developed, part of what we do is to help athletes think about who they are and who they want to be in the future, sort of how their self-perceptions are evolving and where physical activity and health behaviors like healthy eating as well kind of fit with their views of themselves for the future. So kind of reintegrating that into their values and goals for the future. And so it's not really abandoning that, but it's sort of understanding how that's evolving and, and where these things still fit. Yeah. And the other important piece of the puzzle from the theoretical perspective that you're 
using is the self-determination theory. So maybe we also look into that a little bit and how does it help understanding this this question? Sure. Um, so I think, um, so like we talked about, sort of having that more self-determined motivation where you're doing it because it's consistent with your goals and who you are and, and um, intrinsically motivating as well, kind of being at the top of that continuum that that's where we see kind of most facilitative of long-term physical activity participation. But I think for athletes, um, you're in this very kind of structured and often extrinsically focused environment where you have kind of directive coaches and schedules built around uh, what you're doing. And um, that prepares you for competition, but it also limits your choices over your life, including your physical activity participation. And um, so they're, they're in that sense, I think can be viewed as a lack of autonomy. And part of developing self-determined motivation is having um, competence, autonomy, and relatedness, some of those basic needs met, autonomy being a big piece of that. And so in one of our recent qualitative studies, we really focused on that transitional journey as athletes move away from that controlled um, you know, sport system to um, a more autonomous, self-directed environment. And um, some of the athletes talked about that as, as liberating and the freedom that comes with that. And that can be um, exciting, but also having to navigate that newfound autonomy is also challenging at times um, because you haven't been used to having <laughs> that autonomy and, and to being able to engage in, in those more self-directed ways. And so I think one of our athletes' uh, quote was something along the lines of like, what do I do now that I can do whatever? So having the autonomy and knowing what to do with it is, um, I think, part of that transitional journey. And then also uh, with that, um, reflecting on what you value about physical activity and how that might change from, you know, a sport context versus when you're um, doing it for more health promoting reasons um, and how it fits into to your life um, in the future. And then um, I think redefining the purpose of physical activity as well. So, you know, as we were talking about earlier, there's sort of that kind of culture that defines what physical activity looks like. And so learning that it doesn't have to be painful and intense to count, that you can find things that are enjoyable and meaningful ways of engaging in physical activity beyond your sport career. And I think also this qualitative work that you've done from journey from control to liberation, it gives us an alternative picture of the traditional athletic retirement studies focused on retirement being kind of a negative event with the sense of loss and all those things. And you're showing that, you know, actually there are these openings for new ways of practicing sport and it can actually be something that is liberating and exciting and not just a sense of losing your place in a team and and that social prestige that comes with with being an athlete so I think that's quite exciting and and also a positive yeah. message yeah I think so and I think one of the challenges with some of the transition models out there and it's hard to put like really complex ideas into linear models right and so when we do that sometimes it 
it lends itself to the kind of dualistic outcomes. Like it's either positive or negative. And, and I think some of the qualitative work helps us to see the nuances of that, that it, it can be both and, and, and it, it can be a lot more complicated than that. And there are some of these positive aspects of, of opportunities that might be opened up when you're no longer have sort of the pressures of uh, performance and competition. Yeah, I think it would be a nice time to finish for our first part with this positive message. So thank you so much for the conversation so far. Let's have a little break and then crack on with the second part. So thanks. Sounds good. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.